It's Tuesday, October 9th, and this is The Daily Dive. We are in for it again as Hurricane Michael is set for a collision course with the U.S. After just going through it with Florence, Hurricane Michael is intensifying and could make landfall as a Category 3 hurricane. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios and extreme weather expert, joins us for what to expect from the hurricane and also a gloomy global warming report from the UN that says preventing an extra single degree of heat could make a life or death difference in the next few decades. Next, Google just came clean about a bug in their system that exposed the private data of hundreds of thousands of users through its social network, Google+. Douglas McMillan, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about the bug, what data was exposed, and why Google Plus is now shutting down. Finally, chances are you've probably noticed someone at work come down with something recently. That's because the flu season is upon us and it's time to get your flu shots. I know many of you might say, I didn't get the flu shot last year and I never got sick. Or I got the shot last year and was sicker than ever before. Caroline Key, health reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us for why those excuses mean nothing and you should still get the flu shot before the season gets into full swing. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Three days of food, three days of water. Make sure you've got all your medications. Get ready now. If you think you might have to evacuate, know your evacuation plans. If you think you're going to use a shelter, find out where it is. We're going to do everything we can to keep the roads open. Do not wait. If, if your area is supposed to evacuate, evacuate now. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, science editor for Axios and extreme weather expert. Hurricane Michael is making its way towards Florida. They're saying it could hit Wednesday, maybe Thursday, and it's just increasing in intensity. What do we know about Hurricane Michael? The hurricane has formed in a region that has moderate amount of wind shear. That would normally be bad for a developing hurricane. It means that winds in the middle of the atmosphere are a little bit too strong. So some of the thunderstorms that make up the core of a hurricane tip on over and get disrupted. For whatever reason, this storm has not been disrupted by that and instead rapidly intensified. In light of that, every subsequent forecast that the Hurricane Center has put out over the past 24 hours has increased the forecast intensity of this storm to the point where it is now forecast to make landfall as a Category 3 or 4 hurricane. If that occurs, that'll be the only major hurricane to make landfall in the U.S. so far this year since Florence weakened before landfall. Very different storms, very different target regions, but this thing is actually a really big threat to the panhandle of Florida, including the city of Tallahassee. The thing to pay attention to with this particular storm is if you look at a map of what Florida looks like, this is kind of a region that people don't think about much, but it's called the Big Bend region of Florida for a reason. It's where the coast goes from being east to west oriented to being north to south. In that arc, you can pile up water against the coast. So this region is really susceptible to a storm surge event. It's going to depend on when the storm hits and how strong it is at the time of landfall, all those sorts of things. But there is concern among the hurricane forecasting community for a pretty big storm surge in that region. Luckily, it's not as populated as other regions of Florida. Florida Governor Rick Scott has issued a state of emergency for about 35 counties so far. So they're getting ready and we'll monitor it and see how it occurs during the rest of the week. The other thing I wanted to bring up was this UN report on global warming. They're saying that it's going to be really tough to meet that expectation that everybody had from the Paris Climate Accord to limit the amount of warming to, I think they said, 
1.8 degrees, but everybody wanted to hit a 1.5 degree number. And they're saying it's almost near impossible that we would hit that now. You could read the report many different ways. The report basically was asked for by governments because the Paris Agreement calls for limiting global warming to well under 2 degrees C, which translates to 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and aspire to the goal of 1.5 degrees C, which I think is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. This is important. The difference in these had a half a degree difference globally. They wanted to know, well, what does that mean? Does that save small island countries? How many people does that put underwater? How much ice does that melt if we go from 1.5 to So they asked the IPCC to come back with an answer, and they came back, and the answer um, is pretty depressing. Um, Yeah, I would say so. The answer is very, yeah, it's very tangible in that you'd go, if you limit it to 1.5 degrees, you would have an Arctic sea ice-free summer once every century or once every couple of decades. If you go to two, you get it once every decade or more. The difference means about 10 more million more people put at risk of sea level rise. What they found was what it would take to get to 1.5 with the emissions trends we've been on and are projected to be on. And keep in mind that 2018 emissions globally are projected to increase versus 2017. We would have to basically transform the global economy on a dime. You know, a way that has never happened before, however, is not impossible and would in fact probably make a lot of people very rich because it would be using new technologies, creating new jobs and disrupting the traditional way of doing things. Politically, and the reporters in the room and like reporters such as myself calling in late last night to the press conference in Korea, we were pressing them to say, basically, this isn't going to happen. You're presenting scenarios that are possible. But politically, we have Trump backing away from Paris, just elected a leader in Brazil that's going to back away from Paris. This isn't going to happen. There's so many things behind it. Part of it is that they're banking on some technology that is in its infancy or, you know, isn't proven completely yet. As you said, there's a lot of political will that needs to be thrown this technological stuff thrown behind this. I think one of the authors of the report said something that limiting the warming to this would be within the laws of chemistry and physics, but doing so would require unprecedented changes. As you said, changing on a dime and it's doesn't seem like it's something that we're ready to do yet globally. Yeah, it doesn't. But one of the scientists described herself as a realistic optimist in the sense that she knows what's realistic in terms of the science and some of the politics, but she she believes that humans, when taking collective action, can rise to challenges such as this. As a person, as a human, taking my reporter hat off for a second, like, I want to believe that and be hopeful. This doesn't mean, you know, this report doesn't mean we're all going to die and, you know, global warming is going to doom us all. It really means that impacts that we stop would occur further down the road are going to occur sooner than we thought, that two degrees of warming is actually a lot more of a problem than we thought, and that when we are headed towards above three degrees C of warming, which is where we're headed now, we're headed into really uncharted territory, and we better prepare for it. Andrew Friedman, science editor for Axios and extreme weather expert. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Google Plus is kind of considered a little bit of a joke, a, a punchline at this point. You know, they, they started it in 2011, and the goal was to let's beat Facebook, let's right. try to replace Facebook, and it was a uh, it was a big swing for the fences and a big swing and a miss. A lot of users found it confusing, and a lot of users found 
um, no reason to spend time on a second social network. Yeah. So it really never got a whole lot of traction. Joining us now is Douglas McMillan, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. The last time we had you on, Google was trying to squash some privacy concerns after you guys detailed how common it is for third-party apps to be able to read and analyze Gmail messages. In some cases, it wasn't just algorithms and stuff. It was actual people reading your Gmail. Now we're finding out that Google had some other type of data breach in the form of a bug that kind of same thing gave third-party apps access to your data. But this time they were trying to hide it completely. They planned on not telling anybody until things surfaced again. What happened? What do we know about this? Just one language clarification. As far as we know, no data in this incident was breached. At this point, Google has not found any evidence that outside developers actually took data. However, there are some pretty big questions about the amount of investigation they did, how hard they looked to actually figure that out or not. So what happened, we reporting today, is that people on Google Plus social network had entered profile data such as gender, date of birth, occupation, romantic interest, relationship status, that kind of data into Google Plus. And you can set that data as privacy settings to only share it with you with your friends. If your friend happened to sign up for a Google Plus app, then that app developer could be sucking up your data and using it for who knows what. This is a bug. They were not designed to do this. But basically, this was a result of Google creating a lot of these open channels for data. They're called APIs, as you mentioned, and making this more and more data access points available to developers. And that's, in that sense, this is actually very similar to what we talked about last time with Gmail. Gmail has also opened up itself to outside developers to let you take your email out of there. And in that case, they haven't found any evidence of misuse on Gmail either. But part of what they're announcing is closing down some of those access points for Gmail as well. That's one of the reasons why they didn't report it initially. There was no actual breach, as you said, but they said, well, you know, what are we going to tell people? If there was no breach, there was no misuse. What are we going to let them know? You're going to kind of worry everybody for nothing almost. And they also didn't want to get swept up or be compared to Facebook and the whole Cambridge Analytica thing after they had went through great pains to say that we're not a big problem. Don't worry about us. I think that there's been some hubris at this company. I think that they have people in this company feel like Google has solidified its systems and has hired some of the best, smartest people in the world about data security and have some of the best processes around protecting your data. But what our reporting shows is that there are some very questionable choices around what executives at the company did once they found out there was potential for misuse. The decision was, okay, let's investigate the apps. And when the investigation turned up you know, we don't really know what happened. We don't know if there is mis there could have been misuse, but we don't know. The decision at the end of the day, and this decision was handed to CEO Sundar Pichai as well, he was aware of this decision, was to not tell users. And if I'm one of those users, I would today be asking why didn't you tell me that my data could have been breached? I would rather know that my data could have been accessed rather than be completely in the dark. Yeah, they were really worried about an oncoming regulatory thing. Like, you know, if we let everybody know, they're going to want to regulate us. And I think in some internal memo or something from a lawyer even said, oh, well, he's we're going to have to testify before Congress if this comes out. So they were really worried about that whole thing. And you guys even wrote in, in the article, there's this thing in Europe where certain companies have to disclose if there's some type of 
breach or something like that within a couple of days if something happens, this would have met those requirements in Europe. Not necessarily. Basically, they don't know if there was a breach. They don't know if data was accessed. And therefore, most of the laws are say, if you know data is accessed, you are legally required to notify customers. However, I think most people would respond, well, how hard did you look to find out if yeah. there were, I think you also owe it to your users to do a thorough investigation into whether there was a breach. And at this point, it's not clear that they have done that. And by their own acknowledgement, they don't know if uh, a lot of stuff was accessed. Part of the problem is the design of their systems is that they, they do not keep, um, they call it log data. When you use an app on a Google site, they do keep a log of all the different kind of data that's flowing, but they only keep that for two weeks. And after two weeks, they erase everything. So that's designed to protect your privacy because right. they don't want a whole historical record of all of your data and what you're doing. But this design also means they cannot do a thorough audit when something like this happens. They can't really provide a thorough accounting for it. And this bug was in place for like about three years, they said, right? Since 2015? Oh, exactly. Yeah, the, the tests they ran were over a two-week period in March. And they came back with this number of potentially half a million users were affected. But that user number that they're talking about all over their blog posts today does not represent the full picture. Because, yeah, as you're saying, it's over two years this bug exists and went unfixed and potentially there could have been a lot more users than that thanks for joining us douglas mcmillan reporter for the wall street journal okay thanks a lot it was the highest death toll in about 40 years so last year's flu season was really deadly and we know that the best way to protect yourself is to get the seasonal flu vaccine it's not perfect but if you do get the flu after getting the flu shot it's likely to be way less severe and you're you know you're less likely to be hospitalized or to die from the flu joining us now is caroline key health reporter for buzzfeed news it's officially fall in the united states it's time to start warming up getting those cozy sweaters on getting your pumpkin spice lattes from starbucks and it's also time for the flu shot. I think the uh, official flu season starts in November, but all the recommendations say you should at least get them by the end of October. So let's start with there. What kind of flu shots should we be getting and why is it so important? Last winter, we had a pretty severe flu season and there were high levels of flu activity around the U.S. The flu season peaked early last year. Around November, there were a lot of hospitalizations and there are actually an estimated 80,000 deaths related to the flu. And there was also about 180 kids that died from the flu. Yeah. And this is a really high number. This is an estimate from the CDC that they do after each flu season, but it was the highest death toll in about 40 years. So last year's flu season was really deadly. And we know that the best way to protect yourself is to get the seasonal flu vaccine. It's not perfect, but if you do get the flu after getting the flu shot, it's likely to be way less severe and you're, you know, you're less likely to be hospitalized or to die from the flu. In terms of which one you should get, that will ultimately be a discussion between you and your doctor. I'm not a doctor, so I can't tell you which one you need, but I can tell you about the different types that are available this year because there are some changes. They do have uh, a but I love the names of them too. It's like flu yeah. zone, flu ad, flu silvax, flu block. There's a few and they're all yeah. dependent on uh, ages. Mm -hmm. If you have certain illnesses and things like that, there's also a flu nasal spray that you can get instead yeah. of getting a shot. I think that was kind of a, an interesting one. Who are the people that are most likely to get that one? According to the 
CDC, you know, there's no preference between flu mist or the standard flu shot, if that's the ones you're choosing between. But it is meant for people between ages 2 and 49. And it's not meant for pregnant women. And it's also not really meant for people who have suppressed immune systems. That's kind of related to the fact that it uses a live attenuated virus, which means the virus is weakened, so it won't make you sick. But there are some precautions for certain patients. So you definitely want to ask your doctor, hey, am I eligible to get the nasal spray or should I get a standard flu shot or a different one of the special types depending on your individual health and your medical history and any medical conditions. But if you are afraid of needles, it is a great option. <laughs> Because, you know, it's just an easy needle <laughs> yeah, it's spray. So, easy, so exactly. if you're really terrified of needles and that's maybe a reason why you're not getting your flu shot, then this is a great alternative. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of reasons why people don't get the flu shot. Part of it could be laziness. You just don't want to go out and get one. Part yeah. of it could be the needles. You're scared of them. Part of it, people say, you know, I get the flu shot and I still get sick and they kind of get bothered mm -hmm. by it. They think it is a cure-all or something like that. But they're widely available. Thankfully, iHeart Media, they provide little clinics for employees to get them. So I know a lot of companies yeah. do that for their employees. You can get it pretty much just anywhere. Let's talk about the effectiveness, though, really quick. Because, I, like I said, I think people get annoyed with getting the flu shot and then they still get sick. Overall, the effectiveness last year of the um, vaccine was about 40%. Tell us a little bit about that and uh, how the vaccine worked out last year. There were reports about the vaccine not working as well last year or being ineffective. You know, I think that that was not necessarily true, that it, it didn't work at all. You know, it did work to a degree. But it's important to keep in mind that the effectiveness of a vaccine, the flu vaccine, varies from year to year based on how well the strains that are included in the vaccine, as usually three or four, match the strains that are circulating during flu season. And scientists choose which strains to include in the flu shot based on predictions made earlier in the year when other parts of the world are experiencing clusters of flu cases or flu season because it's their summer, because it's the southern hemisphere. So they have to make these predictions well ahead of time. It takes a while to make the flu shot, right? And, and make large enough quantity of the vaccine to get everyone vaccinated. I didn't know that that's how it works. So they're looking at the southern yeah. hemisphere when they're going through their winter flu season, and then they're making those predictions for us. And it's looking at other parts of the world, um, parts of Asia, it's just looking, they have their flu season a little bit earlier and it's it's just the way that they choose what to include. And sometimes, and this is kind of what happened last year, is that the virus can, in the time between these predictions are made and when the flu shot is ready, you know, the flu mutates constantly. So it can change and the strain that ends up circulating is slightly different from what is included in the vaccine. Sometimes a new strain will pop up that wasn't in the vaccine at all. That's the most extreme case, and that's not really what happened last year, according to the experts we spoke to. What happened was there was this slight mismatch. So the circulating strain, which is called H3N2, the vaccine wasn't as effective. It was only about 25% effective. At the same time, you know, like I said, there's two or three other strains that are included, and for those strains last year, it was about 50 to 65% effective. So even if it didn't protect as well against H3N2, which was just a really nasty strain of flu, especially for older people. It can really cause people to end up in the hospital, but you're still protected against these other strains that could give you the flu as well. Caroline Key, health reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.